I'll invite you to turn with me now to Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16. Last time we looked at how Abram and Sarai should have waited upon the Lord to fulfill his promises that he had made to them. Uh, They legitimately had a difficult trial before them. They had what seemed, at least in their eyes, to be an impossible the impossible odds that they would still yet have a child. Uh, But then they drew uh, false, bad, sinful, uh, really terrible conclusions from this difficulty that they faced. And they drew up this plan, this sinful plan, for Abram to have a child with Hagar, with Sarai's maidservant. And so we looked at the first six verses last week, and we got... Uh, to the end of, of verse 6, where uh, Hagar flees from them. She fled from uh, Sarai and from Abram upon Sarai dealing harsh with her. Uh, again, we noted, to, to no one's surprise, really, there was conflict between Hagar and Sarai. And Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled. And so the story, story continues in verses 7 through to the end of the chapter. And we're going to look at these verses together. It continues and it reaches a climax towards the end of chapter 16. We reach there the key lesson that is discovered at the end of the chapter for really the whole chapter. And interestingly, this lesson is not revealed to Abram or even to Sarai directly, but it is revealed to Hagar. And then through them, it makes its way to Abram and Sarai. And the lesson that Hagar learns is something that Abram and Sarai really should have known at this point. It's a lesson that had they acted upon it, then they would have been spared this whole mess that we're looking at in this chapter. And so let's begin by reading, and we'll read the whole chapter again to remind ourselves of the first six verses, and then we will look at verses 7 to 16 together. So let's read Genesis 16, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, 
Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. As I said, the key lesson here comes near the end of the chapter to Hagar. As the Lord reveals himself to her, he gives her promises. And then she rightly concludes from that in verse 13. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. The Lord is the God who sees. He knows all. And he has looked upon her here with mercy. Uh, This recognition that he is the God who sees is not simply a recognition of his omniscience, that he actually sees and knows everything that happens. But it goes further than that. It is a recognition of his mercy toward her specifically. If someone lamented that they feel that they're not seen or heard, that person doesn't mean they feel that nobody actually physically sees them or actually hears audibly the words that they say. They feel they are not being taken seriously or they're not being listened to they're not being heard they're being ignored and that was that's really the issue here she is recognizing she is not ignored by the lord he is not blind to her suffering but rather he hears and he has seen her he has looked upon her with mercy she recognizes all this at the conclusion of this story here and she now exalts god for this And the well, then, that is in this place is named the well of the living one who sees me. That's what that Bir Lahai Roy means. The well of the living one who sees me. God was not blind to all that Hagar had been through and to her affliction and turmoil. And in revealing himself to her, she grasped this reality. Yahweh the Lord is the God who sees. He is the God of seeing. He was merciful to her in her difficulty. And he answered, even though she hadn't called out to him in prayer. He just simply showed up. He intervened. And she concludes rightly that he saw and he knew all along. And she took pity upon him and has now come and helped her. And this is the reality that Abram and Sarai should have known at this point. That God sees He saw Sarai's barrenness, and he would certainly have acted. He was going to act in accordance with all that he had promised them to give them a child. This promised offspring was going to come through Abram's line. You remember in chapter 15, this covenant ceremony in which this burning, this fire pot and torch passed through these parts, and God solemnly swore that he would most certainly multiply their offspring. And give them that land. The promise was sure and certain. And even though Sarai remained barren and it was a real trial, God knew and God understood. Their grief and their concern should have therefore been poured out to the Lord. 
the God of seeing, while they waited upon him and his timing. These are the things that Abram and Sarai should have known. And the lesson is eventually given here, though interestingly, it is given first to Hagar. And it teaches us likewise that the God that we worship is the living God, the God who sees. And it is therefore right and it is good for you to entrust yourself anew to the God who sees all and who knows all of your afflictions and who is merciful to his children. And so this is very much a continuation of last week's sermon. The God that we wait upon is the God who sees, who knows, who is merciful to his children. And so let's, let's walk through this and consider this God who sees. First, notice the God of seeing shows mercy on lowly sinners. The God of seeing shows mercy on lowly sinners. For the Christian, for the one who is trusting Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, when we now face affliction, we have only to look back on God's mercy to us in the greatest of all of our afflictions, the misery of sin and mercy, to remember and recall that God is the God of mercy who will yet deal mercifully with us into the future. He has looked down upon us in our utter sinfulness and he has mercifully scooped us out of the pit and rescued us from the wrath that is to come by sending Christ to die for our sins and to secure for us the righteousness in which we stand. And again, if he has done that for us, he is not then going to just abandon us, abandon us on the roadside. He will surely continue to show us mercy. He continues to see our condition. This is all, I think, wonderfully illustrated for us and how God deals with Hagar here. In verse 6, Hagar flees from Abram and Sarai. But in verse 7, we're told, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And so Hagar, it would seem, is on her way back to Egypt at this point. She has fled. She's in the wilderness. But this spring on the way to Shur, this would be on the northeast border of Egypt. So somewhere between where she was and toward Egypt where she was from. Remember we talked last time she was an Egyptian. So it, it appears that she's on her way back to her former people. Hagar is not calling out to God here for rescue and for help. She's not seeking him. She's not recognizing that even though she has been poorly treated in Abram's household, nevertheless, his God is the one true living God. Therefore, she should stay and wait upon the Lord even in the midst of her difficulty. That's not how she's handling She's on the run. I'm out of here. She's going back to her former people, presumably the gods of Egypt as well. But the Lord intervenes and he stops her here out of his abundant mercy. Also, as we consider this scene before us, remember as well who Hagar is. She's a a maidservant. She's not anything that the world would consider special. She's not at the top end of anything, really. She's nothing special. She's insignificant. To the eyes of most. She could just have been 
An individual who's completely unknown to all of the world, including us. Just another servant girl just looking for an opportunity to run away and take off. But the Lord intervenes. He shows compassion upon her and reveals his kindness in the process. And this is how it is when God saves a sinner out of their sin. The Bible describes sinners as dead in our trespasses and sins. We are going our own way. We are the lost sheep. And then God intervenes in his mercy. He takes the dead sinner dead in our trespasses and he breathes life into that sinner. And they come alive and they place faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for the salvation of their souls. We are dead Lazarus in the tomb and we come awake at the calling of the Lord Jesus. There's no indication here in the text anywhere that Hagar believed in the Lord prior to this event. It seems to suggest the opposite. She's running away from it all. And it would seem that this is the moment here where she grasps that Yahweh, that Abram's God, whom she has no doubt heard of, is indeed God. He is the God who sees. I think that's what her confession amounts to in verses 13 and 14. He is not just some God amidst a whole sea of other gods, but he is the one true God who truly sees, the living one. And he has shown her great mercy. At the very core of the gospel message is this reality that God shows mercy to lowly sinners. And he does so by graciously intervening and pardoning sins. It is the good news that goes out to the world that God is holy, he is righteous, and he will most certainly judge sinners. But there is mercy and pardon in and through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And God calls all men everywhere to repent and believe. And this reality that God shows mercy to sinners, it continues to be a comfort for all who have believed. Perhaps you've believed many years ago. But if you have believed, then you do have understanding that God sees our lowly condition and is merciful to pardon sinners. And so we continue then, it logically follows, to continue to trust Him all of our days. To understand that He continues to deal mercifully with us. He doesn't save us from the greatest of all trials and the greatest of all difficulties. The greatest of all judgments. His own righteous judgment for our sins and then just leave us to the side. He sees and He knows He will never leave or forsake his people, but he will deal kindly with us according to his will. And so we continue then to call out to him and to trust him. The God who sees shows mercy to sinners. Secondly here, note that the God of seeing sometimes gives a hard path. The God of seeing sometimes gives a hard path. We want to sometimes think that If God was truly merciful and kind to me, then everything would be easy for me. If he has truly forgiven me my sin and pardoned me and I'm his child, then everything should go well right now. And unfortunately, some have given that impression, have taught that way, that the gospel just sort of solves every problem you will ever face. Everything will go well for you. 
Of course, this is not the Bible's teaching, and that's not how it was for Hagar. We have seen this in Sarai as well. They had received wonderful promises. The Messiah is going to come from Abram's line. The land of promise is going to be given to their offspring. And yet she remains barren for many years. Ten years after even entering this land, they continue to wander and she continues barren. The two of them, Abram and Sarai, enduring this trial, getting old, past the point where this seems plausible that they would have a child. Additionally, if you remember in chapter 15, the land is going to only come to his offspring after they've been uh, enslaved for 400 plus years in another land. So he's not even going, Abram's not even going to see this in his day. They had experienced many good things from the hand of the Lord, but also trials with them. And of course, as we are considering Hagar here, she had known trial. We're not told a whole lot about her thoughts on everything that had happened up to this point. We don't know her thoughts on being given to Abram as a secondary kind of wife-ish. She likely didn't have much of a choice in it. She may have possibly hated everything about it. But it's also possible she may well have been happy to have some sort of an upgrade in her mind. She's no longer just a servant in this house, but she's now the one who bears the offspring of the master. And this could very well be what's going on when it says that she looked down upon Sarai afterwards, after she had conceived, and despised her, viewed her as lowly, that she, she is now the superior woman, viewing herself above her mistress. Certainly this whole thing has been brought about by sin. But even as the Lord shows Hagar mercy here, he also gives her what I think we should see and understand and agree is a difficult path, a difficult path to walk. And her willingness to do it is, I think, evidence of her faith. Evidence that this whole experience truly does leave her humbled before the Lord and trusting him. So here's what the Lord tells her. Verse 8, and he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The word submit there is the same Hebrew word that's used back in verse 6 where it is translated as dealt harshly. Speaking of Sarai's treatment of Hagar that forced her to flee. So this word, depending on exactly how it's used, it can, it can be taken either way. Uh, one could be put down by someone else who deals harshly with you. They sort of, it's like a forced humiliation and humbling of you. They, they treat you harshly. They force you down. That's what Sarai was doing with Hagar. Or... One can put oneself down, submit, be humbled before another voluntarily. And that's what the Lord is now calling Hagar to do before Sarai. So this is a hard word. God is telling her, go back to that situation. In fact, he appears here to be reinstituting the proper order of the house. Hagar is to return to her post as a servant to her mistress. 
She's to submit to Sarai. She's not to try to rise above her or cause trouble. Of course, none of this excuses poor treatment and sinful treatment of her from Sarai. But it is nevertheless a tough path. And yet even so, it's not without mercy altogether either. Andrew Fuller, an old Baptist writer, says, As hard as this might appear, it was the counsel of wisdom and mercy. Then he adds, A connection with the people of God, with all their faults, is preferable to the best of this world where God is unknown. And so I do think, even though this is a difficult situation, a difficult path for her to walk, it's not without mercy. This is better for her than wherever she thinks she's headed at this point. She's running away from one thing, but he asks her, where are you going? To, To whom are you turning? Just on the side, I think it might have been Andrew Fuller, Comments that when people are walking away from the Lord, they're walking away from the church, they say, I'm leaving that behind. It's worth asking not only what are you leaving, as the angel asks here, where are you coming from, but where are you going? To whom are you turning? I've talked with people who are on that path. They're, they're running away. You say, well, okay, you're leaving all of this behind because you have issue X and Y, but where are you turning? And I've listened to them shrug their shoulders. They don't even know. They don't know where they're going. She was wandering off, presumably to Egypt. It also reminds me of Jesus asking his 12 disciples at the end of John 6, all of these other disciples, at least professing disciples of Christ, are abandoning ship in John 6 when he teaches hard things and he turns to the 12 and he asks them, are you going to go too? And what's Peter's response to that? He knows. (laughs) To whom are we going to go? We have nowhere to go. We may not understand all of this that you say, but there's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to turn. All of God's people are promised trials. We will be met with difficulties. We're We're instructed in Scripture to not be surprised when fiery trials come our way. They will come to us. They are part of the means that the Lord uses to sanctify us, to refine His people. But some certainly have particularly hard paths to walk. It may be for a season of time or it may be for a very extended season or an entire life we might even see. In which we face difficulties that might be entirely out of our control even. Difficulty brought on by the sins of others around us. Sometimes we know difficulty is of our own making. Our own sins bring consequences. But that's not always the case. And it's not always that simple. The scripture tells us that as well. The book of Job really is written to that end. It's not as simple as saying, well, you just, you you did something and that's why difficult, something bad. And that's why this trial has come to you. It's not always that simple. And I think we can see that not only in Job, but, but of Hagar here. She's been... Poorly treated, mistreated, certainly. And this whole aspect of difficulty that seems just random to us and why one and not the other is one of those aspects of life that can be filled with mystery. 
It is mysterious to us. We don't understand it all. And it tempts us to be vexed by it. Because we aren't privy to all of the secret workings of God. And why one bad thing happens over here, while one good thing happens over there. And maybe the bad thing that happened to that person, that person's a real decent person. And the wicked person seems to flourish. And of course, Ecclesiastes is a book written addressing that very vexation and the apparent vanity of it all. There are so many ways that we could be walking a difficult road. It could be a difficult family situation. There are innumerable different trials on this front. Within one's immediate family or extended family, there can be these kinds of hardships when it comes to work or lack of work or hardship at the job. Dealing with a society that's gone mad rising tyranny, betrayal of friends, and so on. Sometimes the path is hard and there is no obvious way out, though you look for it. Where the Lord and His providence seems to have a hard road ahead of us. But what do we know? We know that He is the living one who sees. He knows He has greater purposes in and through it all that we don't always see. He does. He sees. He knows. In Hagar's difficulty, God saw her mercy and he's showing her her difficulty, her misery, and he's showing her mercy now. And so as she would go back to this house and back to Sarai, who knows how that's going to go when she shows up. In her future misery, Hagar could recall this moment and remember that the Lord she trusts and that she's obeying in this act is the God who still sees. He knows. Nothing escapes him. We labor in this life with the knowledge that God sees all, knows all, and he does all things well. He does all things uprightly. And where we do face trial that is the result of sins that have committed against us, we know that that sin will one day be judged by God. It is either placed upon the Lord Jesus Christ and poured out upon Him the wrath of God and judgment is satisfied through Christ paying the penalty for it as that person that sins against you believes in the Lord Jesus Christ and is forgiven, or that person will face a horrible judgment before God one day in the future. We submit it all to the Lord and we entrust it all to Him. He is wiser than all. And so humility is the need when the path is dark and hard, along with a spirit of trust and a spirit of prayer. We sing to Him, One of the verses says, you'll recognize it, whatever my God ordains is right, though now this cup in drinking may bitter seem to my faint heart, I take it all unshrinking. My God is true, each morn anew, 
Sweet comfort yet shall fill my heart, and pain and sorrow shall depart. We, we, we make this confession in faith that our God is the living one who sees. Nothing escapes him. Thirdly, the God of seeing pours out blessings. Verse 10 says, The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. So the Lord hasn't just given her a difficult path ahead, but he has also assured her of divine blessing. Now there should be familiarity to the words that we've just read, to this promise that has been made to her. This promise of multiplied, uncountable descendants. One might assume that this does indeed mean that the chosen line of promise will continue through Hagar. This is the promise that has been made to Abram that his descendants, one of the promises, will be multiplied as the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. And so we might think here, well, maybe this crazy sinful plan has worked and this is the child. God promises to multiply her offspring. But it will become clear in chapter 17 that God will make many nations arise from Abraham. And the descendants through Hagar will indeed be multiplied, though they will not be the line from which the Christ will come. They will not be the line of promise. Uh, You can see that in verse 18 and following in chapter 17. And we'll get to that maybe next week. Maybe after. Maybe the week. I don't know. Sometime. So Hagar is given here a blessing and a portion of Abraham's blessing, even if it's not the line of promise. This is, to be sure, a temporal blessing, an earthly blessing. But it's an important one. We don't dismiss it. Hagar wouldn't die alone in a desert or back in Egypt. God would bless her and he would bless her with many descendants. It is a true blessing upon her from God, which rightly gives her comfort here and hopefulness that God does see. It evidences, it proves that to her, displays that. And then it continues in verses 11 and 12. Verse 11, And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. And he shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. It's a very interesting statement. The name of the child is to be Ishmael, which means God hears, because it says the Lord has listened to her affliction. Similar concept to the God of seeing. He has heard, he listened to her affliction, and he's answering it. However, the rest of what's said here isn't maybe quite as amazing. It says he will, be a, he will be a wild man. He's going to be wild like a wild donkey. Elsewhere in Scripture, wild donkey is associated with roaming in the wilderness. Uh, Jeremiah 2, 24 and Hosea 8, verse 9 are two places where we see that. Which likely means here that Ishmael is going to be a wild Man who's free of the yoke of others, but wandering, living a nomadic lifestyle, like an untamable wild animal. 
And it, 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 it tells us that there's going to be conflict with basically everybody. His hand will be against everyone, it says. And everyone's hand is going to be against him. But it also says he will dwell over against all his kinsmen, seeming to indicate that he would yet prevail. Now, just worth noting here, you've perhaps heard the claim that Arabs and Muslims descend from Ishmael, and that this is then the root of all trouble that we see in the Middle East today. Um, So far as I can tell, the claim of descent from Ishmael appears to be false, not true. Now, the claim, from what I understand, originates with Josephus, the Jewish slash Roman historian, uh, who makes the claim that Arabs descend from Ishmael. This would be before Muhammad. The Quran itself does not make that claim, though the Hadith, which is a collection of traditions with uh, sayings of Muhammad in it, uh, does claim that Muhammad descended from Ishmael. So there's a claim of, of both a spiritual descent from Ishmael that Muslims make, but also a physical descent from Ishmael and Abraham. Uh, this is not at all demanded by what we find in the scriptures. Uh, further, as I understand uh, linguistic studies, my understanding is, so linguistic studies, if we, if we consider how Arabic developed in its relation to other Semitic languages, uh, this further indicates that the connection from Ishmael to Muhammad is unlikely. So just, this is just kind of an aside. Uh, we might come back to this matter later on uh, when we look at Ishmael's genealogy as we continue through Genesis. But for now, I don't think it's a correct claim. Uh, nor should we then understand this to be the source of ongoing tensions in the Middle East. And honestly, I don't really, either way, it doesn't, I'm not, I, I, I don't believe Islam for a lot of reasons, not just because this, you know, just because of this point. Uh, but from what I understand, it appears that that claim is spurious. So I don't think we should be using it to say this is what accounts for what's going on today. So we have here blessing promised to Hagar. Her descendants will indeed multiply and they will prevail. And for her, this would be a tremendous comfort, especially given her current state. She's pregnant. She's in the wilderness perhaps not really certain where she's going to end up or how this is going to play out. As I said, I think Hagar receives certainly the temporal blessing here, but also spiritual blessing. And it is true that God gives both to his people. The spiritual blessings we have in Christ Jesus are of the utmost comfort to us. Everyone believing in Christ receives the grace of justification Adoption as God's children, sanctification, and glorification, eternal life. And these are of supreme and ultimate comfort when the pathway is hard, when life's trials set in. We cling to these. But we also do have many temporal blessings as well. Those blessings are not the same for every one of us. We aren't all promised numerous offspring as Hagar was. But God does and has provided for our needs. He has given us much in the way of daily bread. So when we are in difficulty, we remember that the God who sees is the God who blesses. And we call out to him and we look to him for provision.
Fourthly, the God of seeing is worthy to be trusted. I I assume we're picking up on this, but we'll just say it explicitly. The God of seeing is worthy of our trust. I've said that I understand this to be showing us that Hagar did indeed put her trust in the Lord here. It's possible that this was a renewal of sorts. Maybe she believed beforehand and she's just having a time of rebellion here in which she's running away. But it seems more likely that this is the first time she really trusted the Lord and understood precisely who he was. She concludes that Abram's God, Yahweh, is truly the the God who sees. He is the one true God and the dots are all connected here. Abram's God has now appeared to her as well as to Abram. She's no doubt heard the stories and what God has done and said to Abram. But now he has appeared to her. And she believes. It's evidenced in the fact that she goes back. This is the kind of thing James talks about when he says that faith is evidenced in one's deeds. How do we know Hagar believed? Because she goes back in obedience to the Lord, even though this is a very difficult situation. In verse 13, it says, So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. It is Yahweh who spoke, and she so names him the God of seeing. The next line that follows is challenging in Hebrew, and that's why if you have an ESV... It gives you a footnote there with a couple of possible renderings. We won't get into all of the options and issues involved here. But it seems evident that she is amazed that she has seen the Lord, the one who sees her. She has had an encounter with this angel of the Lord and it leaves her in awe and and, and believing. I've, I've seen something of the Lord, the living one, who sees me. And so this raises a question of the identity of this angel of the Lord. Uh, The word angel means messenger, both in Hebrew here and in the New Testament in Greek. It means messenger, but it can also refer to a specific type of being, namely angels. This is the first place in the Bible where we have mention of angels. There are a number of times in the scriptures where there's a reference not just to angels generally or to an angel, but to the angel or messenger of the Lord. And in these instances, it seems like the angel of the Lord is the Lord. And I would argue that this is precisely what we have here and throughout Genesis. When God appears to man in some visible form in the Old Testament, we call that typically a theophany, an appearing of God. For example, when Moses is out and this bush is burning but not consumed, and the Lord appears to him there, he appears to him. Well, the the, the bush, the fire, and the bush are not God, but he uses those things to reveal something of himself to Moses. He appears to him in and through that form of the fire in the bush. And that's what this figure, the angel of the Lord, is here as well. It is 
God appearing to Hagar with the appearance of humanity. Now, this is different from what we find in the New Testament with the incarnation of the Son of God. That is where the eternal Son of God takes on true humanity, true flesh and blood, where he becomes, he takes to himself true human form, true humanity, a human nature. He becomes of like substance with us. But this here is an appearance. It is not a true incarnation, but it is an appearance of humanity. And why do I think this is what's going on here? Well, because of what we'll see elsewhere in Genesis when we see the, the angel of the Lord appear. So we'll, we'll deal with this again later. But also right here in verse 10, the angel or messenger of the Lord says, I, I will surely multiply your offspring. He doesn't say the Lord will or thus saith the Lord. Rather, he says, I will do this. And then... In verse 13, Hagar's response indicates that she has seen him. She has seen him who sees her. Not just he has sent his angel to communicate this to me, but I have beheld him in some fashion. She's expressing amazement because the living God has seen her and then has revealed himself to her such that she has seen something of him. Now, she has not seen the essence of God's being Right, so this is consistent. John will later say no one has ever seen him in his essence. But man has seen these certain appearings like this theophany we're looking at now, like Moses with the burning bush, like Moses when he is said to see God face to face. You don't see the divine essence, but God nevertheless reveals something of himself. Later in Exodus, they'll speak of his backside appearing and passing by Moses. Whatever she understood, Hagar, when this conversation began with this angel in the wilderness, by the end, she's proclaiming, I've seen the living one who sees me. This is what the name of the well suggests. And so he is worthy to be trusted. She understands this. And so she returns as she was told to do. And verse 15 says, And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Interestingly, and we could just miss this, but Abram does name the boy Ishmael, which means that Hagar would have reported all of this to Abram, and Abram would have believed, he would have understood this was an appearing of Yahweh to Hagar. And so I should obey and name this child Ishmael as she has been instructed. The God who hears. Again, when Hagar acknowledges that the Lord is the God of seeing, as I said earlier, she's not simply acknowledging his omniscience, but his mercy to her. He has seen her so as to take pity upon her and help her in her affliction. And she has received a promise that she would take on faith. And she has then sent down a difficult road of return to Sarai, which she walks. And we'll see later conflict yet emerge. 
The Lord is worthy to be trusted. She sees this. She understands this. And so she goes. If you are trusting in the Lord for your eternal salvation, if you are trusting that Christ Jesus has indeed died for your sins and that he is your righteousness, you're entrusting your eternity to him, then trust him in all other matters of life as well. He is worthy of this. He is not absent, but he sees you. It might appear for a time that his face is turned away or hidden, but he sees you. He is merciful toward his children. Psalm 116 says, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. God hears because he has inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol lay hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. The Lord knows and understands and deals mercifully with those who trust him. So trust him. Bring your concerns to him. In prayer, unfold your soul before him in that way. And then instruct your soul to rest as the psalmist does. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ to see that. And he will yet deal kindly with you. The God who saves you will keep you. He will be your God from now and into eternity. Even through difficulty. Even through the valley of the shadow of death. And Abram and Sarai, as we saw last time, they failed in this instant. But Hagar learned the lesson. And then Abram himself would name his son Ishmael because God does indeed hear. We don't look down upon Abram for this. We understand, if I trust, we understand many difficulties in trusting the Lord, even when times are great, let alone in times of trial and difficulty. But let us remember here that God hears. He listens in affliction. And he is the God who sees. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we take it on faith that when we come to you and pray, you are the God who hears. And that you know what we need even before we ask. And yet, Even as your son instructed us that, he told us to still come and pray. Father, we trust that you do see. You see everything. And you see everything better than we do. Forgive us where we are in turmoil and we rage against all of the unknowns and all of the difficulty that we face and the uncertainties of tomorrow and what may or may not be and all the vexing that goes on in our soul. Father, help us to trust you with all of these things. Help us to 
to learn to, to be wise. Help us to act wise each day. Give us grace for that. Father, help us to entrust ourselves to you for tomorrow, to meet our needs and to provide in every way that we need it. Father, whatever is upon us now, whether it's a season of great ease and easy joyfulness and gladness, Father, if that's the case for all, we praise you. We thank you for those great days and seasons. And Father, for those in the midst of tremendous trial right now, whatever the cause, give grace to trust you. Father, and bring them through. Comfort their soul even now. Give them patience to wait upon you. And Father, for those for whom they're they're not on any extreme end of either, one day to the next it can change. It's up and it's down. Father, help us to have calm souls before you to take comfort in the great spiritual blessings we have in Christ Jesus, to thank you for all of the temporal blessings you have given us as well, to seek you first and trust that you will add all of our other needs to us as they come. Father, provide for your people. Do good to us and help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.